the immediate deal, what I thought was going to be a big one, didn't end up coming to fruition. But that opened my eyes to what this industry is about and staying in touch with some of the corporate teams involved in contracts and whatnot. Around the same time, unfortunately, this was a period where fires happened in the Bay Area, fires happened in Ventura, and I was able to stay in touch with the client and the decision makers to say, hey, have any other needs? We can definitely help you out. And lo and behold, by planting that seed, if you will, on a Friday afternoon, they, you know, the person called back and said, hey, you know, I remember our conversation from a couple of weeks ago, we're actually up against a scenario where we need 20 environmental teams to report to a project in Ventura, California. This was the Thomas fire. And just want to see if you have the bandwidth to handle that. Right. And so for me, you know, Friday, one o'clock, 12 o'clock, as I'm like just easing into the weekend, basically get this opportunity. And in a lot of different aspects of my life, I said yes first and, and figured it out later. So the immediate thing was, okay, get us information, but we'll need 20 of these types of personnel reporting Monday morning, 6 a.m., et cetera. And that really was it. So I basically spent the next, you know, almost day and a half continuously in getting what we needed out there in terms of environmental teams, science background that's able to do certain tasks, experience soil sampling, et cetera, and ended up getting it done, right? And for me, it was just an introduction to what this industry was about. I was there myself and really trying to just see what it's like. And it was such an eye-opening experience. Welcome to Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, we're excited to be joined by Nick Lahari, CEO of Essel Environmental and Emergency Response for a fireside chat about how the random can change your practice. Environmental helps clients by managing their environmental liabilities on development and construction projects. The emergency response side of the business is something that came to fruition after a faithful call from a potential client, which we might talk about. What started as a two-person family business has evolved into a two-time Inc. 5000 company in the last two years in a row. The journey for Essel has been a non-linear journey. The hockey stick growth came from a random phone call for a project that opened up a model that changed his business. Currently, Nick works with his teams to help figure out how to continue solving the biggest needs for clients, whether it's on the AEC space or in the emergency response side. With that, thank you very much for joining us today, Sylvia from the marketing team and Nick. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it and uh, pleasure to be here. Yeah, so it's pretty fascinating. This the kind of like two sides of the business that you operate in you know, as I kind of alluded to in the preview here, there was a faithful call. I'd love to get into that. Like, what was the moment that really changed the nature of the business? Because from the outset, it might look like these are two very different types of businesses. So I'd love to get into that. Absolutely. Yeah, that faithful call. I still remember this to this day. You know, start off like any marketing call. Someone called and said, hey, so-and-so referred us to you. We need to have some needs. This was post some of the fires in, in the Bay Area, where it was Santa Rosa, Napa. And it was really one of the first times that a a large event happened that was, you know, significant in size and, and impact to the local community. I think close to 5,000 homes burned in a matter of, you know, hours. And so went out there and at that time, Army Corps of Engineers was taking on the lead in the recovery aspect. And basically they had some needs in doing some very preliminary personnel sampling, uh, environmental sampling to assess the extent of essentially degradation, the, the fuel and the fire debris how that impacted metals and soils and hazardous materials and all those things. Long story short, that initial meeting ended up figuring out that what they needed in terms of the timeframe 
was something that they're trying to figure out logistically. So at that time, the immediate deal, what I thought was going to be a big one, didn't end up coming to fruition. But that opened my eyes to what this industry is about and staying in touch with some of the corporate teams involved in contracts and whatnot. Around the same time, unfortunately, this was a period where fires happened in the Bay Area, fires happened in Ventura, and I was able to stay in touch with the client and the decision makers to say, hey, have you any other needs? We can definitely help you out. And lo and behold, by planting that seed, if you will, on a Friday afternoon, they, you know, the person called back and said, hey, you know, I remember our conversation from a couple of weeks ago, we're actually up against a scenario where we need 20 environmental teams to report to a project in Ventura, California. This was the Thomas fire. And just want to see if you have the bandwidth to handle that, right? And so for me, you know, Friday, one o'clock, 12 o'clock, as I'm like just easing into the weekend, basically get this opportunity. And in a lot of different aspects of my life, I said yes first and, and figured it out later. So the immediate thing was, okay, get us information, but we'll need 20 of these types of personnel reporting Monday morning, 6 a.m., et cetera. And that really was it. So I basically spent the next, you know, almost day and a half continuously in getting what we needed out there in terms of environmental teams, science background that's able to do certain tasks, experience soil sampling, et cetera, and ended up getting it done, right? And for me, it was just an introduction to what this industry was about. I was there myself and really trying to just see what it's like. And it was such an eye-opening experience. You know, at that time, I was operating Asphalt Environmental, which started off as a family business. And being able to have the perspective of emergency response and emergency recovery, and just the scale of, number one, unfortunately, the scale of impact these natural disasters have. I think, you know, we're all now conditioned to watch it on, you know, YouTube or, you know, cable channels, et cetera. But to be around it, to be in it, and to be in front of these homes that have burnt down with the homeowners sort of, you know, going through the debris and just kind of salvaging whatever they can, pictures, you know, et cetera. It was very emotional, number one. But number two, it really helped you understand the gravity of the impact these things have on communities, people in general. But then also at the same time, it was amazing to see the power of the AEC community with leaders in the industry to come in and just be able to provide any resources necessary to put the communities back on track, right? And so in this case, that's what really opened my eyes. And and for us that year, it happened two or three different times in different scenarios in terms of fires that year. So frankly, the first time it happened, I wasn't smart enough to pick up on, hey, this is a big trend. Let's dive in on this. It wasn't until it happened a second or a third time. And I started to realize that we almost basically doubled our revenue just with two projects in the emergency response side, right? And it was just, I was like, you know, really trying to do a deeper dive in like what exactly we did so well and what exactly is growing so fast. And it was just the fundamentals of, you know, augmentation, you know, you've got, you know, it's all about a lot of times in AAC community billable hours. When you've got the mass of 20, 40, 60 people, 60, 80 billable hours each on a regular basis for four to six months, obviously that depending on whatever your multiplier is, whatever your burden is, all these things, it's going to be pretty significant scale, right? And so that for me was a eye-opening moment in the sense of, coming in being thinking of myself as an engineering company owner, professional services, and here something else is kind of the numbers you just can't ignore in terms of just that ability. And I think credit to our team 
at that time really being able to kind of scale this thing and figuring things out on the fly but executing all of these things together really made me focus on that and and really say hey there's probably something here that's just not a one or two time thing right whether that's the perfect intersection of natural disasters occurring more commonly and then subsequently the need to have a professional service technical expertise but to be able to scale that that combined together is what kind of set us on that path and i'll say that to this day it's kind of there's sometimes two completely different paths and, and we're trying to align them a little bit but as a business owner i do work on trying to figure out and making sure that we're you know they're not two completely separate paths and finding some ways to integrate but they are very different businesses fundamentally and in addition to emergency services i imagine that many ac businesses can pivot up also to the pandemic just like anything that happens where there's a need i remember the firm i was working at wanted to like i think they eventually used their hospital relationships to find projects there but can you speak to like what kind of relationships you were trying to cultivate because there's no plan in place right when these disasters happen or when these pandemics happen so what kind of relationships did you cultivate and then how were you able to so quickly adapt like over a weekend like what were the decisions you needed to make that one weekend to make sure that monday morning you were able to provide the service that you agreed upon great question so first and foremost i think that you just have to have context of where you're at right so first and foremost really understanding what piece are we in the puzzle you know and there needs to be some sort of just being street smart and having the acumen to figure that out right because at the end of the day when you get a call like that i was very well aware that we weren't the first call you know what i'm saying like no one gets that call on a friday afternoon because you're the first one in line and i have no problem with that because that's how opportunities come about right so for me it was i knew that they probably tried their first shot their second shot they just couldn't do it now like this one guy keeps calling me let me give him a shot see what he can do and we'll take it from there right and so I think understanding the context is important. So in that case we understood that we're working obviously for the prime. The prime has a contract with the state. Their objective is to get this many number of sites, you know, to be able to show up with the team so that they can show the technical teams or the state that they have the teams needed with qualified subcontractors and teams and as a result then they'll work to execute the project no matter how long it takes. So then now it's understanding okay so then the people that show up should be ready to hit the ground running there's no time to train right and as a result the way i'm going to make a name for myself as an organization is by being able to show at show up with the best people right out of the gate so that they can all of a sudden see wow this company is different than even our number 1 and 2 and 3 even right so then that's going to force them to say let's move them up another notch or whatever it might be so i think first and foremost that context secondly is understanding what the person that you're dealing with directly who are they answering to and based on what they're asking us to do what is going to be considered successful and what is going to be considered unsuccessful and obviously how can i based on what's going to be considered successful how feasible is that right so all those things kind of came together in that period and so for me it was something as simple as being in the business that i'm in environmental services and environmental consulting always looking to hire technicians, associates, geologists, etc. and thinking back at the time, it's like what has worked for me in the past is very simple, just post ads on whatever job sites you see, call the people you know, exhaust those possibilities simultaneously 
dive into getting the word out there so that people can come to you and setting up that funnel, if you will, for prospective employees. But the key part is you have to do these things simultaneously, right? Because when you're in these types of scenarios, you don't have the time to go from steps one to two to three to four. You have to have five things going on at the same time. You have to be able to see what's clicking and double down on that so that you can, you know, basically try to extrapolate what's working and make it go faster. And that's exactly kind of what happened in the sense I was just, I had people that I knew, people that I interviewed. So that was my first five to seven people. I saw applications coming in and I was calling them, but they needed too much, you know, bringing them up to speed or whatever. So I'm like, okay, this is, I'm not going to get anywhere by getting new people. So let me go back to the seven people I've already hired and they're ready to go and ask them if they know of anybody that they could bring along with them. Out of the seven, four did. They're like, yeah, I, I could get one or two people that work for other companies. They're between jobs and da, da, da. But just by doing that, I went from zero to seven by 9 p.m. on Friday. By 4 p.m. the next day, I was already at 14, just based on the four or five people that knew people that they could vouch for and they'd be willing to come out. You know, the pay rates were good, all these things, everything added up. So now, Saturday night, going into Saturday night, I had six spots to fill, right? And I wanted to obviously fill couple extra ones just in case. I was going to be one of the people there and one or two people that I knew from my in-house, my branch was going to also be there. So now all of a sudden I'm now, I feel confident because going into Sunday morning, let's say mentally, I'm like, all right, I'm two or three slots away from making this happen and still having a day to kind of do onboarding or whatever else. Right. So, so it's really, uh, those are the kind of things and understanding same thing as where's my time best spent. And as soon as I realized that getting all the paperwork done, all these things is taking up time for me. I had somebody, you know, in our office, pulled them aside and said, Hey, you know, I'm going to owe you big for this, but I need you to come in and process these people's paperwork, blah, 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 whatever, get their certs, forward that on. Because again, my initial reaction was, I got to do this all myself. And, you know, but then I, you know, you're just running out of time. Right. So then it's like, what's the best thing that I can have maximum output and maximum impact. And then just kind of pulling things together at that point of just saying, okay, once I get them on board, you know, Susan, can you handle the paperwork? Can you handle all these things and the onboarding? And I'm going to print out, you know, where they need to be, who they need to call, all these things by Monday morning. And that's how it kind of happened. I find it fascinating that basically what you just outlined was almost like a meta lesson in prioritization now and in delegation and the ability to be able to do that in a very compressed amount of time. You know, I'm sure that applying that to the business when it's not as compressed has exponential impact on not just like, I mean, the business entirely. I mean, because if you apply that same method to just whatever you're doing, even if it wasn't in the same kind of schedule, I think you, especially if you can communicate that and educate your staff on that kind of way of thinking, then it kind of can help scale the business because you're just always thinking about delegation and prioritization at the very top of what you're doing. It seems like on the environmental services side, I guess this could only work in some way if like the nature of the work wasn't so different from what you're used to. But I'm curious, maybe it is, maybe it was very different. Did you find that like there was any learning curve that you had to also address in approaching this new type of work? You know, the nature of the work was, I think fundamentally, because we understood the nature of the work, we were able to explain to the personnel that we were hiring on what they would need to do and really gauge 
whether or not we felt, I felt like they could do it. And I think part of that experience is having done the work myself, having hired people to do the work myself, just for my own, what I at the time called my nine to five job, right? My nine to five business. I knew in trying to explain to someone, hey, you're going to go out there, you're going to need to collect soil samples. If you're asbestos certified, you're going to take asbestos samples, which means you know, you got to do the chain of custody, you got to do the soil characterization sheet, you got to do all these diagrams, et cetera, et cetera. And then asking them, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I get it. Can you tell me exactly what, like, how you do it if you stepped on site one with no direction? Like, how would you go about it? And then you're just kind of listening to see how this person describes it, right? And so sometimes you'd hear someone be like, yeah, no, I'd show up and they'd take you through the steps because obviously if we've done something, we can verbally describe what we're going to do, right? But if we haven't done it, we use a lot more general terms. We're going to, you know, well, I'm going to, you know, do this. Or as a result, I'm just based on experience, I've been able to pick up on some of those things. So in this scenario, I was able to kind of know who to look for right out of the gate and kind of balance it between people that have a lot of them that have done it. Some of them that haven't done it as much, but have done other things and together kind of built that team, but then also have some kind of safeguards in place in terms of, you know, you have one or two people that you're losing money on, right? But they're senior level, they're experts, they're great trainers, et cetera, but they're kind of your fallbacks in the sense they're your insurance policy. Because if there's one or two performers that need a little bit more guidance, you don't have to put that burden on the client. You can tell them, hey, talk to Steve. Steve will bring you up to speed on what you need to know on a regular basis. And it's a, it's a collective sort of experience. And really it's project management and execution 101, but in such a condensed schedule and high pressure environment that, you know, it's kind of, that's just how it went. And I think some of it was just experience in the sense we did do some of that before. And since then we've expanded into just general positions within these emergency response realms, you know, across the board where on an average emergency response project on the wildfire side, we might carry anywhere from 60 to 100 people on a project, but not all of them are technical. You know, some of them might be generalists, superintendents, supervisors, things like that. And that's kind of where we really had to, there was a little bit of a learning curve in really understanding, moving away from the technical positions into the general positions, what are the characteristics that make a person a better fit for a superintendent or a supervisor role for a removal project, right? Something like that. And so those are the kind of things that come into play in terms of that education and really understanding, you know, 80% 80% of the people, what they say they can do, they like to be able to do. There's that 10% that really do, that can do a lot more. There's a 10% that can't even do that. And really understanding how to be better at deciphering that in the future and subsequently how to have a contingency plan in place when, you know, you might hit some roadblocks while the project is going on. I feel like I'm hearing so much on like smart decision-making and like strategic planning through all of your decisions in this process how did you turn this like opportunity into a continual part of your business now that is a whole branch of it and also were there any decisions you made that like didn't pan out and expected and like was there a learning lesson there oh absolutely so how we've been able to transition from those environments to where we are today has been really taking a step back number one and i'll start with the lessons learned during that time so you know let's say in 2019 we had a project going on in Campfire, which was the largest wildfire at the time, impact the community, 12,000 homes. We were working with that with our prime client. 
at that time, during the peak of it, we had about 125 people working, you know, 60, 70 hours a week up there. Around that same time, I wanted to diversify into other aspects of emergency response. And within that, we obviously what we were dealing with was natural disasters, federal, you know, funds, et cetera. We made some decisions to hire on a team that kind of would help us do similar type of emergency response, but more on a local level, right? So more emergency response related to restoration, mitigation, things like that with traditional kind of scaling apartment communities, buildings, et cetera, restoration industry, if you will. And we, you know, hired some salespeople that worked in that arena, had book of business, et cetera. But the challenge was that, you know, we dealt with the market that was highly commoditized, right? So and at that time, we really became a labor supply company, you know, which is, there's nothing wrong with being that, but going from an environmental company where you're providing technical personnel that can command a typical billable rate, if you will, and then going the other way and becoming almost like a day laborer company within the emergency response space, but having the clientele that is highly commoditized. And as a result, they're not valuing what we did well in the sense of getting the people on time, having project planning and all these things. They needed bodies that could do demo work or whatever it might be, right? But really looking back on it, being afraid to stop and say, okay, guys, we're gonna have to pivot, right? The decision that I made was, well, we'll make it up in volume. And it's for anybody in the community, it's like you have one bad project that you're not making money on, you think, or a client that has hundreds of projects, but you're just not making enough money on it. It's taken 80, 90% of your headache and bandwidth mentally, physically, yet they have so many projects. You're like, man, we're not making that much money on this, right? And the reaction is, well, well they're keeping us busy, you know, and that was my mindset. And Towards the end of 2019, early 2020, even pre-pandemic, you know, we reached a decision that, hey, you know what, we just have to raise our rates and know that 80, 90% of those clients won't or can't do business with us because of that, but we'll kind of pivot. So for me, that year, over the course of almost seven, eight months, we continued kind of battling through that and thinking that we could get out of it by just getting more market share with each company and all these things which was, you know, never the case. And for me, that lesson of the necessity to do a deeper dive into really understanding how we got to where we are and how we can replicate that. I think looking back on it, what I should have done better is get other people's perspective instead of my own, because I think part of, I got a little bit high on my own supply, right? At that time, I was like, I got us here, meaning it was my thought, my mind process, just like you were saying, strategic planning. I thought, you know, I was like, I'm going to make my next home run. And it wasn't a home run at all. In fact, it was a strikeout, right? And so looking back on it, it was a perfect example of like, you know, your past performance doesn't equate to future success or future results. And I should have vetted out my thesis with other people in my network, other people in my business, other people in my advisory board, because they would have said, the numbers don't match up, Nick. Like, why would you do that? You know, numbers don't make sense. And at that time, sure, it would have been on me to say, ah, we're going to battle through and figure it out. So it was that sort of, I guess, ego, you can say, you know, got a big humble pie from that and saying I should have done all these things because, but what I was doing was I was thinking back on that weekend when I made those things happen and those choices that I made since then, you know, to thinking that I could build this huge thing by myself based on decisions that I've done in the past. You know what I'm saying? And so to me, that was the biggest lesson is that 
you got to let other people in, got to let them see what you're seeing, hear you out. And then you have to be prepared for people to be like, that makes absolutely no sense. And this is why. And be willing to listen to that without getting defensive, without being like, you don't know what you're talking about. And being like, yeah, okay, then maybe, maybe we don't do this, you know? And that's what it was. But, you know, since then we've been able to kind of pivot to very specific project-based staff augmentation. So construction projects, emergency response projects, utilities project, obviously with the labor shortage that we have across the board, especially in the AC community with talent, we focus in on these types of projects, whether they're uh, emergency response projects or remediation projects where they need a certain skill set for a period of time that we have already, right? And so what we've tried to do overall is keep a lot of our personnel that work on these projects on board with us through the months that there isn't any firework to take place or anything like that. And so we almost reverse engineer the market and market their skill sets to the companies that can take them on. That in and of itself kind of created a almost like a reverse industry to where the people that we continuously bring in and they work on our various sides, they're then able to work on other projects throughout the year and create a, a division just based on that. Yeah, that's it's, it's fascinating. I appreciate the deep dive and sort of like the lesson learned about, you know, at some point you have to know when to turn things off that just aren't working. And I mean, the whole making up in volume, I hope the people that are listening really kind of take that to heart. Because sometimes, whether it's in the sector that you're working in or the type of client that you're really focused on, like it just doesn't pencil out for the kind of lifestyle. Let's say if you're like a residential, because you're an architect and you focus on residential, like to maintain the kind of lifestyle that you're looking for, that hopefully keeps you healthy and sane and all that, like you have to know what's giving you energy and what's taking away energy. And if it doesn't even pencil out economically, then you should probably really invest the time that week deep dive with your team to just understand, okay, like we have great talented people here. What else could we be doing with them? Or like just dive deeper into the data that you might have to make those decisions. The thing is, I mean, phenomenal. You know, and sometimes people may not have the benefit of having a team, right? Benefit yeah. of being mm -hmm. like, hey, advisory board or whatever. And all I can say is if you're leading your practice, if you have a practice, whether it's a one-person practice, a five-person practice, and you're thinking about your next move, right? How to get to that next level. First, if you haven't thought about that yet, I would highly recommend the first thing you should know is where do you get your energy from? Because sometimes people do enjoy working on what people would consider smaller projects. And to them, that is perfectly sufficient because they don't want the headaches of a big firm. They don't want the headaches of growth and et cetera. Whereas other people want to grow something to a certain size and perhaps pivot into something within a firm where they're not the one leading the efforts every single time, right? So I think looking back on it, like knowing what drives you and where you think you want, where you get that energy from, just like you said, George, it's, I think that's important, right? That awareness is important because for me, looking back on it, for better or for worse, I wanted to always build something big. And to this day, you know, whether it's 10 million, 25 million, 50 million, it's never enough. And that's a good thing and a bad thing, right? Because it's always looking at the next sort of milestone, right? And so for me, it was, I, I still remember this day when I used to think about, it was my mom and I in the business thinking about how we could go, man, it'd be amazing to be at $500,000 a year in revenue. Like that would be life-changing. 
And then the day we got there, I was like, huh. I was like, how long, I wonder how long it's gonna take me to get to a million. And then, then it was like, gosh, is that, should I be concerned that I'm never like taking the time to be like, yeah, it's more like the day I get there, I'm just like, look already, you know, on the next sites, but having that awareness. And the other thing is, if you are forced to make a decision where you're, you're saying this project makes no money or makes very little money, but I'm still going to go for it. You know, you have to take some time to think about why, because more than likely you are making some inherent decisions in your mind about why the other option of maybe less clients and more profit per project is not available to you. It's not an option for you, right? To make you want to think about taking on certain things. For me, looking back at that time where I took on this industry, these things, and even beyond the numbers, it was just, I just wanted to feel like I, I was in something, I was doing something, right? And that restlessness of feeling like I'm at least doing something to get myself in the business versus just kind of waiting for the right opportunity and planning and, you know, executing and things like that. For me, that restlessness of wanting to just get into something and figuring myself out of it, you know, was what got me in that scenario, right? So similarly, if you're looking at certain scenarios where you're doing projects that aren't making the margins you want or the money, you know, profit that you need to build a, a practice, it's really to understand what other assumptions are you making on services or other things that may or may not be available to you that you're thinking, oh, well, no one's going to want to work with me yet because I'm a one-person show, right? Or, no, I can't get those types of clients because X, Y, and Z, right? And really being able to do a deeper dive and like, is that really true? Because a lot mm -hmm. of times those are the decisions, assumptions, where might be scared to go after certain things because we're afraid of being rejected. That forces us in this corner. And then this corner ends up being such a vortex of, you know, time suck, energy suck, everything suck. And you're like a year or two in, you're like, yeah, I'm doing all these projects, but man, I'm burnt out. I don't have the money to show for it. And how did I get here? And it always starts from some type of assumption on something that might not be available to you that you think you just can't get. We, we talked about this a little bit in the green room and going to try to connect a couple of different dots here, but like, I feel like, and I'm very curious to hear more about this component of your business, but there's probably part of the answer is just diving deeper into what your potential customer wants. And we talked about like how you approach marketing, which is very unique, I think, within the industry. Probably there's 1% of the entire industry approaches marketing the way that you do, which also ties into like how you've been able to probably to reverse engineer this idea of like the emergency services into more of a yearly service that you can use the same people to work with different clients. Can you walk us through a little bit of like how you generate demand for your services? Because I think likely partly, I'm going to take a guess, but part of the answer in there lies about is really understanding what your client is. So everything that you just talked about, about like, you know, taking a step back or like if it's not the right project, but right margins or things like that, if the answer is probably just focusing more on what the right client wants. So even if you feel like a one-person firm and you feel like that type of client's not available to you, maybe the real key is just learning how do they think about the decisions that they're making and then show up and then figure out ways to show up in front of the line, so to speak, which I think is kind of part of like how you approach marketing. So we'd love to maybe if you can walk us through a little bit about what digital marketing means for you and how that's been helpful for your business. Sure. First and foremost, you know, part of what we were talking about is really understanding how our clients become our clients, right? 
And how do they find us? Whether they are a referral, whether they're calling us on our you know, main line or submitting a question or a proposal request to the website, really understanding what's the steps they go through to get there, right? And sometimes we have to look at our clients and say, are the clients that I'm getting now the ones that I really want? Which sounds bad to say, but fact of the matter is there's an ideal client profile for a reason, right? And really understanding, am I putting myself in front of those clients? And so first starting there. So really understanding where those people hang out, right? So let's say if you're looking at ideal client profile A, single family homeowner, wants to do addition, renovation, whatever it might be, they're that profile. Ideal client B, workplace director for a large Fortune 50, 500 brand in building out international offices, et cetera, et cetera, right? So it's, it's figuring out. So really doing a deeper dive into who those people are, right? So now if you're on the B2C side and you're going direct to the customers and users, you know, more than likely they have tools available to them. And it's a matter of making them aware of who you are, projects you've done, reducing the inherent risk of hiring a bad architect. And how are you potentially going to eliminate those possibilities of that happening? which is obviously, you know, let's say different technologies, reviews, et cetera, are there. Similarly on a B2B side, when you're dealing with that type of ideal client profile, understanding, okay, if I was a workplace director, where would I start to search for the types of, you know, services that I want to provide, right? Are they going on Google and typing in, you know, architect, you know, interior architect or design and genuinely finding that out. And you could find that out by Google search console and saying, is there a lot of searches being done for that? Or what are the searches being done for the types of things that I want to do? And generally what you're going to find is that data will show you how much volume in terms of interest there is, whether it's in social media, whether it's in hashtags, whether it's in search, right? And then similarly with, let's say the more niche and the powerful they are in terms of B2B brand that has 500 places that they need designed or whatever, more than likely for every Fortune 500 company, there's probably at least one or two people that deal with that. And generally what I've found is they all like to create an association that that's there, right? Because at the end of the day, we like to hang out with people that are kind of like us. And from a professional standpoint, that's the reason associations exist. Hey, what are you doing in your organization that I can learn from and vice versa? How can we combine resources and et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden you'll find that there might be a Workplace Director Association of America and da-da-da, right? So then, then it's a matter of, okay, so how can I, for me to do business with Workplace Directors, all it takes for me to work with five of them over the course of a year to reach my target revenue, whatever. So if I needed to go with five, where do they hang out? Well, what place better than, first of all, you need to know who they are. Then where do they hang out? And now it's like, as a anybody that's buying a product service, how does someone become relevant in their space? How does someone become relevant in their community, right? How do they become aware? And that's kind of where the, some people will call it a cliche in terms of becoming, looking at the buyer's journey, right? Of people going from being aware of who you are and what you do, right? And sometimes they're two different things, being aware of the company first or leading with the principal first. It's like, oh, you designed that. That's interesting. And then kind of saying, being in a place to where they can actually have, you guys can talk about projects together, business together, et cetera. And so building that trajectory out for us has been kind of the same model, really understanding who do we work with, 
the most? Who do we like to work with the most in terms of what's the model that we like? So for us, it was project managers working for either design firms or architectural companies, engineering firms, construction firms, or even developers and users. And they're in charge of projects start to finish. Pre-construction managers for contractors are in charge of designing the projects, building the teams of the projects. Architects, same thing, building the teams, right? So it's like, how do we become relevant in their space? So then we, you know, the most basic thing we started with was search. Everyone starts at some point with Google for something. So we wanted to make sure that we tried to do our best to own the market share there in terms of search engine optimization, as well as pay-per-click ads. And then similarly, that's obviously transactional, right? High intent when you're looking for something like that. But in understanding and researching how buyers buy, right? And especially in business to business and services, the theory was that, you know, they learn about you, they hear about you, they become aware of who you are. Then there's like this opportunity to learn about the values you provide, not the services you offer, but how you benefit them, right? And then eventually there's going to be a scenario where they're going to need a proposal and they'll reach out to you. And the whole name of the game is how can you do that process, condense that time frame, and do that a thousand times a year, right? So for us, we're really in the process of diving deeper into that. And as things change in the technology side, really figuring out, okay, in addition to SEO and pay-per-click ads on Google, how can we create and stay relevant with our potential clients? I mean, Monograph's a great example of exactly that, right? How to stay relevant and just take up a little bit of equity in the mind and saying, wow, that was a really insightful webinar or session or even event that going to or I went to. So same exact thing for us is how do we take up a little bit and be relevant without, you know, pitching our services? Because if they know us, then we will reach out to them. They'll reach out to us automatically. And that's been our journey, you know, continuously is really figuring out different ways. And obviously tools, technology has helped in terms of HubSpot, marketing automation, ads, videos, LinkedIn, all these things have really helped in making sure that we are top of mind and stay as relevant as we can with our target market, you know, across the board in the ways they want to consume it. And I think that's the other thing. And probably the biggest thing is understanding the way that buyers buy the process, but then really understanding how that's changing. And it's interesting, obviously a lot of people have heard of Gary Vee and, and it's really understanding like what he talks about in terms of, you know, building the brand, but also like people tell him all the time, oh, uh, you know, Facebook ads are this or that yet. The first thing they do when they're off work is go on Facebook and, you know, look at videos or YouTube or whatever it might be. And it's like, do you really think that they all buy just completely differently in terms of when they're doing searching for an architect or an engineer or whatever, they're so ingrained in going on Yelp and going on Google and going on something else. Do you think they have like a phone book in their thing where it's just like they're turning the pages for finding an architect? No, they do the exact same thing. So if you appear in the same mediums that they're already in, the disruption there is minimized because then all of a sudden, oh, I didn't know about this company. And then all of a sudden, as long as you can get their attention in a positive way, you know, you'll start to see that tick. And that's what happened to us. And currently we're obviously work in progress, but we've been able to just with the, some of the basic things that we've done so far, you know, increase our number of bottom of the funnel leads and new business on a weekly basis to something where it's, you know, at least two to three a week on a consistent basis 
Whereas a year or two years ago, as we were just starting it, it's a long road to get here. But, you know, and obviously one of the things we we're talking about is once you get a client in the door, their lifetime value in terms of other things that you could do for them or the upsell is significant for our business. So, you know, all those things kind of make a very good use case for the digital journey for our potential clients. That's a really critical point. And by the way, I think if you're in the audience, you have any questions, feel free to start sharing them now in the chat or the Q&A, we'll pick them up. But even that, that concept of lifetime value, which might be, you know, first time some of our audience hears about that, lifetime value is essentially like, let's say you have a project for, with somebody and it's 50K, it's retail. And for every store that they produce, it's another 50K or whatever, right? It changes. But you can then kind of back into that and say, well, the potential lifetime value of this customer could be actually in the millions. Who knows, right? And so how much are you willing to spend today for that lifetime value potentially, right? And so that starts to change your thinking around how you spend money on marketing activities because you can justify that either through that idea of lifetime value or another metric called like payback uh, period. Like how long does it take you to recoup the money you invested in that marketing expense? So in your case, if it's like three to five that come in per week and you're able to close them in a month and then start work within that month, by the time you get that first paycheck, it's probably covered all the expense that you had on the marketing side. So right. in startup world, like sometimes a 12 month payback period is a good, is an okay number, right? Obviously the faster, the better. But it just means that now you actually can put money into generating more business. And as long as you know how to scale the operational side, you can actually scale very profitably uh, and very quickly because now you've been able to generate demand so quickly. We do have one comment, which I always like to call out. Marjan uh, Pearson is a guest and a fan of the show. I love this presentation. It's a great lesson in client relationship management and service. It's amazing what can happen with strategy and communication. And she also loved the idea of reverse engineering skill sets and client needs. Yeah, which I think is is really critical. Yeah, and we also have a question from Remy Miller. How do you conduct professional relationships such that coworkers are willing and happy to put in extra work beyond the norm when it's necessary? How do you personally build that leadership capital? That's great. So I think first and foremost, it's at a very basic level, have to understand what would make it worth their while, right? For each of us, as let's say leaders in the organization. And a lot of times I feel like people in the AAC community, including myself, the lessons learned in how to be that leader once you have employees, because a lot of times you get so used to operating on your own and because you're the technical expert on what you're working on, everyone else is around to support you, right? But then once you grow, as you grow the business, you start to hire other people to make that happen and what I feel, one of the areas that a lot of people learn the hard way, and I don't want to even use the word culture just because that's such a loaded word, right? But even of just understanding human relation 101 when they're working for you, you know, really to understand what would drive, what would motivate someone to help out. And similarly, how would you be able to show their appreciation of, hey, thank you for helping me out? You know, and it's not always money, right? So I think first and foremost, really understanding that, what is it that drives the people that need to help you out, right? That are helping you out. And similarly, to get to that point of even, you know, in a certain capacity, it's like as a team where you need the biggest help, you're not sure if, if the people that are working for you are going to be willing to help you out or available to help you out. I would say that that's not an ideal scenario to be in right out of the gate, right? Because at the end of the day, 
you want to make sure that people around you they understand like how important this big deal might be for the company and as a result they're willing to help you out and they're willing to step in and make it happen now not everyone is going to have the ability to drop everything they have and just jump right in you know two arms and two legs and just jump 100 in the deep end with you and you have to understand that's okay right but the people that do i think being able to bring them along with you they may not understand how big of an opportunity this is for you as an organization right and a lot of times we as business owners assume that people and our employees are looking at things in the same exact lens as we are in the sense they understand the difference between a highly profitable client versus a low profit client the reason for keeping a highly profitable highly demanding client you know satisfied versus a client that you know is low margin and low volume so it's making sure number one you're very clear about why this is important why this is different obviously employees are like oh here she's going to start expecting this every weekend or every night and it's like having those discussions up front and being like look this is a big deal for us here's what i'm going to need from you you know can you help me out and without even having them saying you know let them know that hey in return I'll be happy to have you take Friday off or Monday off and to kind of balance it out just because I'm kind of stuck in a bind. And for the most part, I, I can't imagine someone that's working for a firm, whether it's small or midsize, and you know, the owner coming to them and saying, Hey, I need your help. Here's how we can come up even and I'll make you whole type. You know, most people will absolutely step up and say, Yeah, I'm happy to help you out, or hey, I'm I'm slammed this weekend, but I've got three hours between this and this that I'm happy to help you out, right? And you just got to be able to roll with it. But but I think number one starts with the transparency of making sure people understand we finally got a shot with this opportunity. Here's why it's a big deal. And this is why we need kind of all hands on deck. And also be ready to make it a two-way street. You know, as much as they come through for you, you know, do something for them that kind of shows the two-way appreciation of like, I recognize and I appreciate the sacrifice you had to make to be available on Friday night or Saturday morning. As a result, you know, I know you were talking about going to, you know, X, Y, and Z, here's a voucher for, you know, whatever, because that shows that you also went out of your way to, you know, just kind of that token of appreciation, which is what I think a lot of times, even employees have told me in terms of feedback and I've read in different capacities is they've come through for us as the organization. And then we get so busy or get inundated with other things. It's not a two-way street, right? Then they're just like, oh, well, you know, I'll be slower to pick up the call next time. But I think the importance is the two-way street and having that humility to be able to do that is something that resonates with a lot of people. Yeah, yeah I'd really like to add to that on the receiving end of like a lot of deadlines. If I see that my project architect or manager is in the office with me on a weekend, then like I know that they're working just as hard as I am. And it's not like me just doing all the work. So I always want to support the team and help out the team. So I think that was really important. And also if I'm not, if I understand that there's a reason why this work is coming up last minute, if it's happening every week for the same reason and I'm in the office alone, well, like no one's going to be happy with that. So I think the communication is so important. And I hear that come up like so many times in our best practice webinars that being open with and clear with what you're doing and having a personal relationship with the person you're working on, not just a work relationship goes so far. And then gratitude, following up of gratitude. Those are like very common themes that happen so much. The other component to it's like, can you reflect on the reasons why? And I think like what Sylvia's getting at too, with this whole idea of like, what's the, why are we here? 
is really helpful. I mean, because then that way leadership shows that they're sort of diagnosing the problem. It likely led to this point that we're here right. in some, some capacity. And so how can we improve project planning? How can we improve things in the beginning? To your point, Nick, about like the two-way street, it's like, there's a rec, we're here at this point, we got to fix it, but the rec, and I'm going to make you whole, which I think, you know, as an industry, like even just that concept is lacking in many, many different teams, but going one step further and being able to say too, okay, like here's, I kind of took a time to like diagnose why we got to this point. Here are the reasons why I think we can make improvements on X, Y, Z to make sure this doesn't need to happen again. And that's kind of also sharing the commitment on one side too, of like, here's how I'm committing to you too, from like improving on the operational component of this, because that there's a reason why I might've gotten there from, from the very beginning. Definitely. And I think some of the insights that, so some of the insights that can be pulled from that in terms of doing a postmortem and really understanding that is you can then turn that into which will elevate you as a service provider to being an advisor to your client, right? In saying when you're seeing either the same client or another client head down the same direction of all of a sudden, you know, all hands on deck at Friday at 3 p.m. when it could be prevented, the moment you start to see those signs again, or even as a, you know, getting ahead of it, letting the client know, hey, just let you know in our process, this is how much time we recommend that you allocate each of these milestones, right? You know, based on what I'm seeing, you're already a little bit behind in milestone one, which will then condense everything else. Here's how, you know, what we recommend or what we advise to do now so that you're not doing that further down the road. And a lot of times, most of the time, the client will say, wow, I didn't even think about that. Thank you for letting me know. Like, how do you think I can do this now to X, Y, and Z? And sometimes other clients will be like, yeah, no big deal. Like, let's just get this done. And then as a firm, you just have to make a decision on, whether the client and the collateral damage that's happening by having that client is worth it. Because at the end of the day, that's when the culmination of everything comes together where you know, we have these conversations with our clients on a regular basis. An environmental company is short-staffed nationwide. So how are they filling these positions? Their managers and the people that are willing to take on the sacrifice are working additional hours and coming in from other regions and helping out, et cetera, et cetera. And yet they're not willing to spend an extra $8 an hour to have someone available in their zone so that they don't have to do that. Lo and behold, what happens three months later? Their top performers quit and go to another company because of, they're not grinding it out as much. The overtime pay at some point is not worth it, right? And then all of a sudden they're like, uh, yeah, our managers in these three regions quit. Now we really need your help or whatever. And it's like, and it's almost like this happened over and over again of the client at some point just has to make the decision that the collateral damage on the rest of the company because of this one scenario is just not worth it and have to make those harder decisions on making that happen, you know? And that's just something that's happening across the board. Well, Nick, this has been an amazing conversation. We're at time. I mean, I feel, I like to use the term like insights per minute. And I feel like this is definitely one of those like high insights per minute conversations that we've had on, on the podcast. My last question, it's always a favorite one here. is to bring it back to the human level, which I think we've done a really great job of, of kind of calibrating for both is what is the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you? People do nice things for me all the time. From my wife letting me marry her to, I'll say this. I think the nicest thing in looking around and different family business dynamics 
I think the nicest thing that my mom did, my mom is the one that started the company originally. It was her and I when we first started. And there's been so many different conversations and dynamics of family business and families, you know, butting heads because of whatever it might be. And at the time I was a young buck who thought I, you know, I took the world by, was my oyster basically. And I think for her, she didn't want to play the role of, let me show you really how it's done. You know what I'm saying? And in a certain way, she said, look, I'm going to take a step aside. I'm going to go on to some other things. If you want to continue with this, you move forward. If not, no big deal. Like this is, and for me, looking back on it now that I'm, I'm a parent and I think that's at the time I thought my thing was like, oh, she's retiring. She's doing other things. But in reality, what she was doing was she wanted to just kind of step aside and let me see what I could do with it myself. Fortunately, she's still around today and we're able to enjoy a lot of things in terms of where we are as an organization. But looking back on it, I think, you know, that's something that she did as kind of without having to make it like a formal thing or without having to have it get to that point. But I think looking back on it, that parental sort of empathy of just like, you know, I think helped create a lot of opportunities for me, you know, and I think that fundamentally really kind of opened some doors and kind of helped me see myself as the business owner that I had become. But I think that was probably what started it all. But I try to do a decent job of trying to stay appreciative, right? And we all talk about gratitude and it's really something that as a, you know, 2022 goal is to be those things. And I try to talk with my young kids and, and just thinking about what are we thankful for and everything from clients giving us opportunities to, you know, vendors and all across the board. If you're looking for kindness and you're looking for ways that have been people, it's across the board. And in a lot of ways, I consider myself very fortunate in a lot of the things that have happened and aligning me to where I am and obviously trying to do a better job of giving that back. But overall, I would say that was probably, you know, business-wise, something that that's really um, set a lot of things in motion. Thank you for sharing that anecdote about your mom. I think that in its way, it sounds like its own leadership lesson, which it seems like it's been a great platform for you to continue to apply and learn how to be a better leader over time. And I feel like that's a really great source of inspiration for that. So with that, thank you so much. Speaking of gratitude for taking the time to join us here. Thanks everyone that's listening for your time and just like getting to know more about Nick as well. And hopefully you're absorbing some of like the kind of like mile an hour insights that are being thrown at you. There's so many ways in which we can dissect this. And yeah, so appreciate also as always Sylvia for joining me as well. Great questions. And uh, with that, have a great weekend, everyone. Take care. Thanks guys. Thanks, really appreciate it. Thank great you. job. Cheers. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Hey, it's Sylvia from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. Monograph is designed for architects by architects. Over 450 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial or sign up for a demo today at monograph.com. Find out what a practice operations platform like Monograph can do for your firm. Get started at monograph.com. Talk to you soon.